The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, last week, uh, we've been walking through a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and last week, Jeff led us through the Lord's teaching on humility. The disciples were asking Jesus who among them would be the greatest, and the Lord turned their understanding for greatness on its head. And he told them that true greatness is making oneself like a child before the Lord, dependent, trusting, resting in his care. This week, that same childhood language rolls over and carries into our passage today. The Lord is describing his disciples as little ones. So when you hear that in the passage, these little ones, he's talking about his disciples, those who have done this, who have humbled themselves. But this time, the language is not used uh, to show how these uh, little about teach a lesson about humility, but it's used to show how these little ones are supposed to live. As many of you may know, Happy and I have <clears throat> two daughters, and We've got a lot of guests. Happy, H-A-P-P-Y, that is my wife's name. You heard that correct. Legal on her birth certificate. Um, Happy and I, we have two daughters, Anna. She is 10, and Goldie, our youngest, is just seven months. It has been quite uh, the change, shifting gears back to diapers and middle-of-the-night wake-ups and lugging around bags upon bags for a human who is one-tenth of our size But as tiring as as all of that can be, if I'm honest, the thing that I have braced myself the most for starting this process of raising a little one again was the discipleship process, the discipline process, teaching right and wrong, having to enter again into a world of no, don't do that, on repeat. I remember very vividly some of these moments with Anna. One in particular has lodged in my mind We were at the Exton Mall as a family back when it actually had stores in it, and we were eating in the food court. Anna, she was probably three, and she kept standing up on her chair and turning around and grabbing the back and doing a shaking thing, and so I would tell her, Anna, no, sit down, you're going to fall, you're going to hurt yourself, so she'd sit down, but then being the three-year-old she is, she'd stand back up and start shaking again, and Anna, no, sit down, you're going to fall, you're going to hurt yourself, she'd sit down, but then again, she'd get back up in her childhood amnesia. The back and forth went on for a bit, and then, wham, (laughs) she fell onto the marble floor of the food court. Doesn't look good to the people around us, but she did. I have to admit, I am less than compassionate in these situations. Happy is much better. As soon as I knew she was fine, there was no blood and she wasn't disoriented, just startled, my heart was, I told you. (laughs) (laughs) I should show more compassion in those moments, but this moment in particular did turn into an effective teaching tool over the years. If I'd ask Anna to stop doing something and she'd question me as to why, I'd say, do you remember in the food court? Do you remember what I told you? And she'd say, yes. Why didn't she listen to me at first? Well, there's the sin factor. And then, of course, there's she was three. But larger than that, there's a short-sightedness that she had. She didn't see the danger in what she was doing. She didn't believe what I was telling her and that I had her best in mind. After the fall, she understood that. 
She understood the seriousness of listening to me in a way that she hadn't before, especially when I was saying that her safety was on the line. Our passage this morning, in our passage, the Lord teaches us a similar lesson, only it's not about bouncing on chairs or falling on the floor, but our engagement with sin. And the dangers that we face are far greater than falling on a hard floor. There are consequences with eternal ramifications. So please, if you would, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 18, where we will be reading verses 5 through 9. And I'm going to pray for us because we need the Spirit of the Lord to help us understand His Word. Father, I do just ask that as you have been with us, as you promised to be with us, that you would be with us now in this moment Be with me as I seek to expound your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us, and we just pray by your spirit that we would receive it, that our hearts, all of us, would be convicted, convicted of sin, convicted of our need for the salvation that you have graciously shown us through Jesus Christ. Be with us, we pray, in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, Matthew 18, verse And this will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or or lame with two hands or two feet than to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. This is a short passage, but it has a lot to say. The Lord is using some very graphic images to speak to the topic of sin. We are the children standing and jumping on the chair, and the Lord is graciously warning us. Sin is a word not used very often in our culture today. It's a word wrapped up with with spiritual meaning, a word that denotes guilt. It carries with it condemnation. And, And since we are largely a secular society who diminishes personal responsibility for our actions and despises the thought of judgment, it makes sense that we don't talk about it much. It just doesn't really fit. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot shy away from talking about sin. Some churches seeking to be relevant, seeking to be unoffensive, try to avoid this word, but we can't do that. We have to talk about sin because it's impossible to talk about humanity, to talk about God, to talk about our needs if we don't. If we don't talk about sin, we let the child continue to bounce on the chair until they fall. If we don't talk about sin, A person can never truly come to know God. Thankfully, our Lord cares more about us than to keep silent. Dealing with sin was Christ's primary purpose in his coming. 
Thankfully, he's willing to offend our senses if it means saving our souls. And that's what he's doing in this passage. There are many words used throughout the scriptures that talk about sin. The word that we translate here, it has a focus uh, on the temptation that leads to sin, as well as the sin action itself. That's why some translations actually use the word stumbling block. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, or if your eye causes you to stumble, it's the act of tripping up, falling down, tumbling into sin, and our passage warns us not to fall into it ourselves or to lead others down its path. And so this morning, we're to consider three questions together that come out of this passage. What is sin? Why is it so serious? And what are we to do about it? So first, what is sin? We learn much about God and the world from the very first pages of Scripture. In Genesis, we see a God who's able to create out of nothing using only his word. We see this God create a good world, diverse and beautiful, a reflection of his goodness and his varied attributes. We see him as Lord over all, the one alone who makes and governs all that there is. And then we see this God make humans. He makes them as an expression of his love to enjoy him and enjoy his creation under his blessed care. He makes them to follow him, to listen to him, to obey and trust him and experience all of the blessings that come from that. And then we see him entrust this blessed creation to humanity who he created to be his image bearers, to reflect his heart to the world, to one another, and to bring him glory. And so on the very first pages of Scripture, we see a glorious God, sovereign over all, who made everything good, worthy of praise and thanksgiving, and we see a people who were made to praise him and thank him and reflect him in their every action and deed, obeying his word for their good. But we also see, unfortunately, in the first pages of Scripture, that humanity does not live up to the blessed call on their lives. In, we do a class before service called Donuts and Doctrine. In Donuts and Doctrine this morning, our catechism question was, what does the law of God require? And this law is not meaning just the law of Moses, but the law of who God is, the way he made things to be. And what was the answer? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done and what God commands should always be done. Now, if you are a living, breathing human sitting in the church this morning, I hope as we read that you think, yikes, (laughs) We ought to think, yikes, that's a very lofty requirement, perfection. But it is what God made us to be, perfect in regard to righteousness, not perfect as in being God himself, but perfect in obedience to him, in glorifying him, in reflecting him. We think, yikes. But Adam and Eve, those God first made, They wouldn't have first thought, yikes, if they heard that. When they were first created, they were without sin in that moment. We don't know how long, 
but there was a time where they did uphold his law. But then, when tempted by Satan in the form of a serpent, they broke God's law and they sinned. Sin, in its most basic definition, simply means to fail to live up to God's law. The concept of sin really means missing the mark. If you're supposed to be here, you're here. And when it comes to holiness and moral perfection, anything that isn't here, even if it's just here, is falling short. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit that they weren't supposed to, sin was unleashed onto the world. From that point on, Scripture makes clear we all have become sin factories. Our bodies are fallen, and the very desires of our hearts and our spirits want to rebel against God. Our spirits are hardened. Adam, as our representative head, failed and was condemned. And ever since, we all likewise have been condemned and fail as well. Living in a glorious world made by God, but a world that is now cursed and fallen and in sin. Unless we look to Adam and we shake our fists and say, I could have done better, let's consider what the scriptures tell us about sin and ourselves. We have to understand that if we're going to talk about it and know God. So for one, We all do it. We all sin. Scripture says no one is righteous. No, not one. We all would have done the same as Adam, and we all do the same as Adam every day. We have to recognize that. The slightest failure to do something out of absolute faith and trust and dependence upon God, that's sin. As the catechism said, doing what God says not to do is sin. And not doing what he does say to do is sin. If you think, well, I'm not that bad. I don't know that I sin. I ask, have you loved God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength today? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself perfectly? Have you never had an evil thought towards another person? No harsh word has ever left your mouth? Have you never envied? Have you never been enraged? Have you never failed to thank God for all the good in your life? Have you charged God with wrong? If your answer is yes to any one of these things, and the list could be infinite. Scripture tells us we even come up with ways to sin against God. If the answer is yes to any of these things, which it is, you've sinned. We all have. In fact, apart from Christ, Scripture tells us it's impossible For a person to never sin. Some may sin more or or less, but we lost the ability to not sin when Adam and Eve took that first bite. We all give ourselves over to it. We love it, Scripture tells us. In fact, the Scriptures describe our relationship to sin as slavery, Apart from Christ, we're enslaved to sin. We can't break free from it. It's a master over us. Try to tame it as we might, we fail over and over and over again. And a big reason for that, and this is another thing, comes up in our passage, is that there are forces that are working against us to ensure 
that we sin, temptations to sin. The passage largely deals with this idea of temptation. In class, I forget, Michelle, I think, was bringing it up. Someone was bringing up just this idea of being surrounded by John, being surrounded by temptation. Verse 7 says, for it's necessary that temptations come. This doesn't mean temptation is good. No, it says also, woe to the world, woe to the one by whom temptations come. It just means temptation is inevitable. It's a part of this sinful cycle that we exist in. There are forces seeking to ensure that we don't walk with God as we are supposed to, playing to our sinful desires. And these temptations, they come from all sorts of places. They can come from within us, our own flesh and our hearts, and from without, Satan and the world. All these things work together to defame our God and lead us away from him. Ourselves, we're doing that. Not only do we sin, but we're actively being enticed to do so. And when we do sin, we are responsible for it. It's a current cultural trend to write stories about well-known villains helping us to empathize with them, seeing things from their perspective, what led them to be the way that they are. It's not wrong to feel for broken stories of people, but we have to be very careful with such stories lest we forget no matter what happens to us in our lives We are responsible for how we act. Jesus was the most egregiously sinned against human on the planet, and yet he never sinned. The book of James says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. We fall short of the glory of God because we want to. We may not realize that, but any sin that we commit stems from sin within us. No one can make you sin if you aren't a willing participant. Now, yes, temptations can tempt us toward it, make it harder to resist, but that sin within us has to act. We're willing. The Apostle John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The reason that we take time each week for a moment of confession of sin during our service is because we can't forget this, that we fall short still of this law, even in the power of Christ. We will talk in a minute about the grace that comes through Christ to cover our sins, but even as a forgiven people, we have to remember we've been delivered from sin We need ongoing forgiveness for sin, and we need help staying away from sin. Fear of his wrath and judgment is what Scripture tells us is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, recognizing he is holy and he is just, and we are not. If you want to know God and have the truth in you, as John says, you have to acknowledge your sin before him and before others. And we do this because a failure to do so, a failure to acknowledge sin and turn from it, has dire consequences, which leads us to our second question. So 
Why is sin so serious? So what is sin? Sin is falling short of God's requirement. Now, why is sin so serious? Why this language? You could be sitting there thinking, okay, I have failed to live up to all that God requires, but what's the big deal? We all make mistakes. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Surely God will overlook my little mistakes, or surely, you know, my good things will cover over. The Lord's word this morning does not allow for such a thought. Anna not listening to me, bouncing on her chair, falling onto the marble floor is one thing. Was it wrong? Yes. Was she hurt? Startled at the very least. Was it that big of a deal in the grand scheme of her life in relation to her health and in relation to me? No, it was not that big of a deal. But we aren't talking, again, about chairs and marble floors. We aren't talking about listening to just any other human, sinful human we're interacting with. We're talking about holiness. We're talking about perfection and listening to an all-glorious, all-satisfying voice of the God of heaven, our heavenly Father in whom is all life and peace. We've been walking through the the biblical timeline in our most recent Theology U course and And have seen over and over again the seriousness of sin. Most of the time, it's quite understandable why God brings his wrath. People killing each other. People worshiping idols and so on. But there are also times where even as believers, we can feel like as we read something, Jeesh, God, was it really that bad that you had to respond that way? Adam and Eve, they took a bite of a piece of fruit. They didn't kill anybody like Cain did. Moses was denied from entering the promised land because rather than speaking to a rock to have water come from it, he struck the rock. Saul was not allowed to remain king because rather than destroying goods brought back from a conquest like God had commanded, he devoted them to God in the temple. The man Uzzah reaches out and grabs the Ark of the Covenant, trying to prevent it from falling to the ground when it tips And as he touches it, he's struck dead. Weren't some of these just a little bit harsh? Weren't these people often well-intentioned? Wasn't this just a little misstep? I've done worse. No, none of these punishments were too harsh. None of these in their depths, none of these people in their depths were well-intentioned. None of these were just little missteps. We are told that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. When God prohibited Moses from entering the promised land because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it, God said to him, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. It seemed small. He just struck a rock rather than speaking to it. But in that small act, in Adam and Eve's small bite and Saul's small sacrifice and Uzzah's quick touch of the ark, all failed to believe God. God told Adam and Eve they would die if they ate. God told Moses to speak, not strike. 
God told Saul to devote all to destruction. God said no one was to ever touch the ark. Every single one of these acts was sin, a failure to obey God's word. And that is a gravely serious thing. Why? Because to fail to uphold God's commands says that we know better. It says that God is not as glorious as he is. For even if just a moment, it elevates us or we try to elevate ourselves above God. And this is a grievous thing because we do not know better than God. And there is nothing more glorious than God. So to sin, even in the slightest, has cosmically significant implications and makes an eternally damning statement about our hearts. If you're a parent, think how mad you can be when your child disobeys your word. You don't even come close to the glorious nature of God in heaven. God should strike each and every one of us down immediately for any sin. That would be perfectly justified. Which is why we get the strong language that we do in this passage It's better to drown yourself with a heavy millstone than to lead another person into sin. It's better to cut your hand off or pluck your eye out if it leads you into sin. This is hyperbolic language, but it doesn't mean it's no less extreme. We know we should not end our lives. We know the Lord doesn't want us to mutilate our bodies. That's not what he's saying. But he uses these extreme physical descriptions to show the extreme spiritual measures we are to take to avoid sin and to highlight the extreme seriousness of engaging in sin and leading others into it as well. It would be better to go through this life with no hands, no feet, and no eyes than to engage with sin. Do you think this way? I doubt that many of us take sin in our lives this seriously, but we ought to. Why? Well, let's continue our list of things that the scriptures show us about sin. Why is sin so serious for us? First and foremost, because sin is against God. Against you and you alone have I sinned, says King David, To God in Psalm 51, after having committed adultery with Bathsheba, after having conceived a child with her out of wedlock, after having her husband killed through a devious scheme, when he's brought to repentance for all of this, what does he say? It's against you, God, that I have sinned. We certainly do sin against one another. David sinned against many people in this situation and led many into sin, but anything is only ever considered sin because it is first and foremost sin against God, doing that which he has forbidden or failing to do that which he has commanded. Any wrong that you do to another person on this earth is fundamentally a wrong that you have done to God. You have transgressed what he has said. You have defamed his name. You were meant to display his glorious image. And when we sin 
especially when we sin against others. Not only are we not acting in the likeness of God, but we are doing harm to others who bear His image. It showed a lack of respect and trust when Anna wouldn't listen to me. But I'm a sinful human. I could be wrong about the chair, and I'm limited in my authority. But when we bounce on the chair in defiance of God, we are defying the one who is never wrong. The one who will never do us wrong. The one who is perfect and perfectly knows what is best for us. The one who is glorious creator of heaven and earth, eternally existent in perfect love and harmony. The one who has all authority. When we disobey him, we are rejecting his eternal glory and incurring eternal consequences. Our sin is serious. Romans tells us about the sinful state of man that we've traded the glory of God for other things. And because of that, our sin deserves death. So we sin against God, our sin deserves death, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 reminds us. God told Adam and Eve if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they would die. We all have a sense of justice. If someone dishonors us, we want them to apologize. If someone steals from us, we want payback. If someone harms us or someone that we love, we want them to face the consequences. We feel this way because God is a God of justice. You can only have moral affections and moral feelings and morality if there is someone who is a moral lawgiver. You can't have it without that. So when we sin, even in the slightest, Punishment is deserved for the dishonor, the distrust, and the effects that comes because of our sin. And because we are sinful, finite beings, there is no way that we can ever make up for the wrong that we have done to God. I'm not eternally glorious, so I cannot make payment in myself for an eternally egregious sin. Because of our sin, we all experience spiritual and will all experience physical death. We've been separated from God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden and denied access to the blessed presence of God in His holiness. This is our eternal condition apart from Christ separated from God. So Jesus says here, sin is so heinous and it brings about the hell of fire. That it would be better for us to die on this earth or cut off our hands and feet than to engage in a sin or lead others into it, leading to that hell of fire. I don't have time this morning to go into the reality of hell. We did do a message on that many months back. You can look that up. But hell is real. We deserve eternal separation and punishment for our sins against God. But we will be reminded in just a moment, there's been a lot of talk about sin, a lot of talk about shortcoming. He's like, where's the gospel? We'll get to it. God doesn't leave us without hope. But there are more few more aspects of sin I want us to consider, particularly as those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about eternal death any longer. Praise be to God. 
But sin still does have consequences for us on this earth. And we certainly don't want to suppose upon the grace of Christ. For one, sin always does us harm. Always. There's no caveats, no nuance. Sin always does you harm. Sin is out to destroy us. Do not be fooled. Sometimes that's obvious. Murder, theft, adultery, the effects and the consequences are plain. But anything that is sin is harmful to us and to others even if we don't realize it. Do a simple Google search and you'll find this to be true. If you Google what effect does and then insert any sinful thing that God says in the scriptures have on the body, you'll be amazed. There was one study that I found that I thought was particularly interesting. It was done to see the effects of lying on a person's health. They studied two groups of people. One group they told, refrain from any type of exaggeration, any type of lie at all. The other group they said, have at it. The results, and this is what they say, and this was not a Christian study, when they, the subjects who were told who were not told to refrain from lying, so when they, the group that was lying, told more lies, their health went down. And when they told the truth, it improved. In fact, telling three fewer minor lies a week translated to four fewer mental health complaints and three fewer physical complaints. End quote. (laughs) And the study doesn't stand alone. Our common sense tells us this. Lying, hatred, sexual promiscuity, homosexual activity, drunkenness, gossip, unforgiveness, gluttony, the list could go on. They have very real effects on us, on our bodies, on each other, on society, disease, stress, mental health, etc. These things promise life, but they do not deliver. But sin again isn't just about what God says not to do, but what he says to do. Google also, what effect is joy? What effect does peace, patience, kindness, generosity, prayer, church attendance have on your health? Guess what you'll find? There's no diseases on that list. You'll find people who practice these things generally live longer, live healthier, live happier. You want to lower your risk of heart disease and your cholesterol and improve your sleep? Well, according to health studies, you should learn to forgive. It's not rocket science. Studies simply confirm what the Bible proclaims. There's a way that God designed us to live. And it's good. And it brings him glory. Now, I'm not saying that we only ever experience physical pain or otherwise because of some direct sin in our lives. That's, that's not the statement that I'm making here. We live in a broken world. Scripture makes abundantly clear that even as we seek to walk in holiness, we will feel the effects of this world. But I am saying our sin does affect us. It does. And it affects others, even the things that you think don't. And the Bible affirms that. Sin does us harm, and sin leads us away from God. While it's true that one who has been sealed by the Spirit of God through Christ Jesus cannot lose eternal life, the Scripture also warns that sin is the avenue through which a false trust in Christ 
will be shown. This is part of the stumbling used here in this term. You don't want to tempt others to sin and have their faith proved insincere because of you. Likewise, we ourselves do not want to engage with sin because we know it is sin that entangles our hearts and would prove our faith to be hollow. A true faith in Christ, a saving faith in Christ will avoid a life of sin, will, will pursue a life of holiness, knowing that sin is grievous to God. We pursue holiness because we know to not do so leads our heart away from him. Sin is deadly serious. And so that takes us now to our last point. So what is sin? It's a failure to obey God. Why is it serious? Because it dishonors him and it leads to death and destruction for us. And so then we ask, what are we to do about it? This sounds pretty bad. Well, quite simply, we are to take it seriously and to put it to death within us. And how do we do that? Well, first and foremost, we have to know that we can't do that apart from the saving blood of Jesus Christ. No attempts at keeping his perfect law can appease This is why Jesus came and why he died. This is the crux of the gospel and the whole storyline of scripture that the holy and perfect God of the universe who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, sent part of himself, his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we could not live, to die on the cross even though he did not deserve it and become sin for us, to bring us forgiveness and break the power of sin and the curse of death that hangs over us. That's what Jesus did for you. He is eternally glorious, and he took it on himself. Romans 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that in the body or that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Christ came to set us free. It is for freedom that Christ came to set you free. Stand firm then. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what this baptism this morning symbolized. Matt has passed from death to life because of Christ. And the angels in heaven rejoice. He's freed from the bondage of sin. If you're here and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which was all of us at one time, Know this, you are a slave to sin. No amount of good works you do can fix the chasm that's between you and God in heaven. But Jesus Christ gave up his life so that you might have forgiveness of sins and life in him. You just have to acknowledge that you need him, that your sin is serious, and you will be forgiven It is as simple as that. But then we don't use this forgiveness and this freedom as a cover-up 
for evil, but rather we pursue holiness together. Paul continues in Romans 6, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He's speaking to us. Let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. God wants to work good through you. Jesus reminds here in Matthew, we are not to sin, nor are we to lead others into it. So together as a church, we have to pursue holiness. The first part of our section, verses five to six, certainly have something to say about the world to those outside the body of Christ. Woe to them if they tempt and lead one of Christ's little ones astray. Woe to them if they persecute God's beloved people. But there is definitely application for us toward one another within the body of Christ, even in that verse. We must, as Hebrew says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does this mean? It means we have to call one another to faithfulness. We're doing that right now. And we pursue faithfulness ourselves for God's glory and for our good and for the good of others. We must not sin against one another doing harm to each other, but rather our example as a church should be one of love the fruits of the Spirit being displayed among us, and you all do this so well. I am so thankful for this church. I see much of the love of Christ shared among you in this room. We must know God's Word so that we can have our powers of discernment trained in all righteousness so that we can help others along the way. We don't want to be like those who call evil good and good evil and give approval to what God does not. We have to be willing to open up our lives to one another. There should be no category of sin in your life that another believer close to you does not know about. That doesn't mean we have to share every detail and every moment of our stumbling, but we should have people close to us that we can share with who know all the types of things that we can struggle with so that they can keep us accountable, so that they can pray for us, so that they can speak into those things. God promises to bring healing through confession and power through this type of communal pursuit of holiness. We have to take sin seriously. If you find yourself easily prone to anger, do you just brush it off? Don't do that. Confess it to others. Ask for help. Seek God. If you keep falling into sexual sin on your electronic devices, lock them away at the times of the day you're most tempted. Use filters or programs to keep you accountable. If you know that certain substances are a hindrance for you, don't put yourself in a situation where you'll be tempted by them. There's an infinite amount of varied application for this point. But the basic bit is this. In whatever ways we can, we need to put sin to death. Not living as monks, shutting out the world, 
Sin will still be in our hearts that way, but being wise and discerning, knowing what is sin for us, what triggers and tempts us, being open with others and utterly dependent on the Lord and His Spirit for power. Is there a sin in your life that you have failed to treat seriously? Is there a sin you've not confessed to God or to anyone else or dealt with? Do it today. Today. Things don't just get better with time. Roots only get thicker and deeper. And the illness spreads. Repent and seek the forgiveness and the healing that God provides through Christ and take the steps necessary to walk in holiness. And we do this. We do this in the power of the forgiveness that Christ offers. We can confess. We can admit weakness because Jesus Christ paid for it. We don't have to be ashamed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. There is no more reason to hide. And we need to be people who are ready and eager and welcome the confession and the humility of others and come alongside them. Church, I pray that we would be a people who know and love our Savior, Jesus Christ, who take the pursuit of holiness seriously and who experience the benefits of a life lived according to his word. It can be a hard battle. We will fail, but the battle is worth it. And his ways are always best. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your ways are good. On this earth, we see the negative effects that come from a life of disobedience to you And that exists because those things are cursed. Those are not the way that you meant for life to be. Help us to glorify you. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that though we cannot keep your law perfectly, though we will, even as believers, continue to stumble and to fall, Jesus Christ is sufficient for our shortcomings and weaknesses. And I pray that we would be a people who are eager to share that glorious good news with the world. That Jesus takes the burden of self off of our shoulders, takes the burden of performance off of our shoulders, takes the burden of hiding and covering our shame and our guilt off of our shoulders and gives us forgiveness. Thank you, Father, that that is true. Let it be true in our hearts this morning, I pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.